we're going to finish off the last point, um, and this is going to be our transition to the next Pasuk in Shema. Last week, we spoke about the verse, V'chara af Hashem bochem, and Hashem's anger will be kindled in you. Ve'otzar es Hashemayim, and he will close the heavens, v'lo matar, and there will not be rain, v'ha'adama lo and the land will not give its produce, v'avadetem mehera, and you will be lost quickly, me'al ha'aretz hatova, from upon the good land, asher Hashem nosein lachem, which God is giving to you. So I wanted to, um, the words we didn't speak about, well, First, I wanted to share with you just one, one thought. This is my own thought, but I think if we look at it, it, it makes sense. And it was, um, it's a follow-on, really, to what we started with, an idea of why does it say, that those are two different things. And I think it was Rav Schwab and other Mephorshim said, because is that the heavens are closed to our prayers, and the rain will not come. And that made me realize, well, that's a process, right? Because it's the tefillah that brings the rain. We've had plenty of time to talk about that. Which made me realize that it's really a four-step process that's described here, and that corresponds, um, that does correspond to the four levels of Hashem's, Hashem's ratzon, Hashem's hashpa coming into the world via the four levels of world. So v'chara af Hashem b'chem would correspond to the world of atzilus because the world of atzilus is the world of ratzon, right? That's God's will. In this case, uh, we wouldn't call it ratzon because it's charon af. So it's, it's kind of the opposite of ratzon, but it's, it's the flip side, you could say, of the ratzon. Ve'otzaris hashamayim would be the area of Berea, that the tefilos are not carried through, and that's the world of malachim, and we know that there is a principle that malachim carry tefillos, meaning when we, when we daven, we're also sending, just as Hashem sent things to the world, bracha to the world via means of various forces and delivery powers which he has created. So these powers also transport our tefillos back. They can tunnel through even without the help of a malach, but that's not the usual method of transportation. So that would be there will not be rain. That's the level of Yitzira, because that's a level of climate and astrology and destiny and weather and natural forces. And then this next impact is on the world of Asiya, the physical world, the, the production of something you know, from its potential into its actualization. That's the land not giving forth its produce. So it's, I thought that was just an interesting thing that also ties back to other things that we've learned and seems to me to be not so much a chiddush as a, as a clear description of what's happening in that pasuk, what's described. And since we um, I don't think there's any, any special going out on a limb there once we've already been told by people before us that was two stages, then it's, it's not really so surprising to maybe discover that it's step two and three, and we could look and see that there's step one and four were also described there. But what we didn't talk about at all was va'avadetem mehera, you will be, avadetem is, is lost, as in hashavas aveda, returning something to someone that they've lost. 
Um, Aveda often can, can be used to mean like destroyed, right? But in this case, it, act, it means lost. You will be lost, Mehera, quickly from upon the good land which Hashem has given you, is giving to you. So we, we see a certain contrast here. Um, we see a certain contrast here between what's described in this Pasuk and what we find described typically in the Torah. Usually, we are perhaps even a little bit spoiled by Hashem telling us that he will interact with us in a manner sometimes described as erech apayim. Um, Haron af is that it's ignited, erech is extended out. So you, know, you call that, it's not really patience so much as a long, a very long temper, <laughs> um, meaning being able to wait a very long time and give us lots of time to try and fix things before a reaction comes. But this pasuk seems to say something very different. It says, Vavadatemehera, you will be lost quickly. And that, that is surprising for us. And so Rashi, Rashi steps in and says, Vavadatemehera, you will be lost quickly. So there, there's a question here, which is, why quickly? <laughs> What's worse here? Or what is, let's say, unbearable here? that the response has to happen quickly rather than giving it a long time and let's see, maybe it will get better. And another question which Sifsei Chachamim bring as being Rashi's question over here is why, what does quickly have to do with the process that's in the first part of the Pasuk? The fact that there won't be rain. So here's how Rashi says, Al kol shar hayisurim for all these other sufferings, meaning because of these other things which I said, the charon af and the heavens are closed and the rain stops and there's no food, then you will be lost from the land quickly. Meaning that's just, <laughs> if anything, that's your response. That's not the punishment that's the result after that four-step process. Then I will, I will exile you from the land, but there's another element here. It's the good land which Hashem has given you, which suggests that it's not just, oh, well, since there's no food, you're going to end up having to leave. It's you'll be exiled from the land which caused you to sin. Now, that's a little odd. <laughs> and, you know, someday when we do some more exploring about the relationship of people to the land, I'm sure that this will be an element. But let's take it for the moment as the land which provided you with so much plenty that you were able to, as Bosk says, Vayishman Yeshurun Vayivat, Yeshurun became fat and kicked. Right? You became so. You had so much that you stopped thinking you have to turn to Hashem. You forgot that there was a process like this from Hashem's ratzon to bringing what you needed. And so now, now this caused you to sin. The direct cause of your sin was the fact that the land gave up so much produce to you. 
So therefore, Hashem is going to reverse the process. The only thing is, the reversal of that process means you leave the land completely. I'm not sure, by the way, if this is a punishment more to the land or more to the people. Difficult to say, according to that angle. Mashalamelech. He says, the Medrash in Sifri compares this to a situation of a king. I'll tell you right now that this Medrash, I did not... Uh, I have not yet found somebody who explains it in any depth. And as most Midrashim go, these mashals to a king, you really do need somebody who will come along and explain it better. So we're just going to get sort of, you know, it's a, we should definitely learn it. Rashi felt it was appropriate to speak it out over here, which means it's for anybody to learn from. But there's clearly hidden layers here that, that I'm not going to be able to understand. It's compared to a king, Shashalach Beno Hamishta, who sent his son to the banquet hall. Vahayayoshev, Umafkido, and he sat him down and commanded and instructed him, Al Tochal Yoter Mitzarkecha, do not eat more than you need. Don't stuff yourself. I know we're going to a big party, <laughs> to a wedding, to a banquet, to a feast. Eat what you need to eat. Drink what you need to drink. But don't eat, have more. So you can come home clean. There's, there's a lot going on here. There's some, there is definitely other stuff going on here that's not. OK. And where is home? Because home is not the place where they're having the banquet hall. So the banquet hall is this world people who have behaved otherwise in the past. Yeah, right. <laughs> also the clean, what's with the clean? So it seems like the banquet hall is definitely not the palace or it's some other place in the palace. You know, it's not, this isn't the home. When it says you're going to come home clean, that's not the banquet hall. So if the banquet hall is where the son is eating and drink, is going to eat and drink, then presumably we're talking about this world. That's the mushal, right? So the mushal, where's the banquet hall? The banquet hall must be this world. In which case, the home must be the next world. Presume, I'm, I'm, now I'm presuming, because like I said, I did not find yet somebody who explains this, this sifri that's brought by the Rashi. But this son didn't, keep, didn't track his consumption. Hishkiach is like a mashkiach. He didn't keep an eye on it. He ate and drank more than he needed. And so he threw up. It's really not, not a Pashat Sifri. I, I, I wish I understood it better. Well, the, the idea of vomiting is uh, certainly not what you expect to suddenly have, so to speak, thrown at you from a medrash. But aside from that, aside from that, I think we're more accustomed to hear the idea that the land would throw the people out for overconsumption. That's not what it says here. This is, this is an instinctive response. This is his body is rejecting it. The body itself is rejecting the over. Good. So all the other people who are, <laughs> who are at this party, right? So they're sitting there. And here the, the prince has now thrown up because he ate too much. So they pick him up by his hands, Uviraglav, and his feet, and they throw him behind the palace, presumably to sleep it off.
And again, I'm not sure. Is the palace, so what pa is he referring to palace means the base on or is the palace the base? I'm, I'm not perfectly sure. It's all of Eretz Yisrael. Not perfectly sure. Yeah, I'm not, it's not perfectly clear. Um, clearly, somehow he has to get up and clean himself up before he can go home. Okay. But I put it out there because I hope that at some time <laughs> we'll find more. Mehera, quickly. Ani no lochem arka. Ani no lochem arka. I will not give you a time extension. Ve'im tomru, and if you will say v'halo nasna arka l'dor hamabul, hang on. To us, you won't give a time extension, and the generation of the flood, you will? The Jewish people are going to be kicked out quickly from the land for Avodah but the people who are in the time of the Mabal will, as it says, v'hayu yamav me'ev esrim shana, was 120 years, Dor Hamabal um, sorry, so it was 120 years of preparation time from the time that Hashem told Noah to build the ark, the Teva, until he act, the rain started falling. Mm -hmm. It was 120 years. It was pretty destructive rain. It's a bit of the opposite of what's going to happen in this puzzle. But nor, this is a Musser. Dor Hamabal The Dor Hamabal didn't have anyone to learn from. You do. How were they supposed to know that was going to happen? They didn't realize how serious it was. But you, at the very least, you've seen the Dora Mabel. You know they came before you. So the question then becomes, the king warns his son not to overdo it. The son overdoes it. Nobody wants him around in that state. He doesn't go home, he's kind of put in the alley behind the house and now has to clean himself up before he can come back. And that is where the Pasuk seems to move on to. He shamru lachem, the next Pasuk, which is an Ekev Yural of Tazayin, he shamru lachem, uh, no, I'm sorry, <laughs> we're up to Yudches, v'samtem es devarai and you shall place these words on your hearts and on your souls. And tie them as a sign upon your arms. And they will be between your eyes. Totafos is not really a word worth translating. Uh, it's worth translating, but you may as well use the translation totafos because anything else you say doesn't add too much. So we see that there is, and aside from the fact that it starts with visamtem, and you shall place, but Rashi has cued us into the idea that it's not that we have a sudden, as Aaron would say, whopping topic change, because <laughs> that's what it seems like almost. You, now you went from something, and, you, and I mean, it's a whopping topic change that we're very happy to have, because who wants to think about Haranaf? It's not so pleasant. So we're really always kind of happy when you get to Vesamtem as But the fact is, it's not a topic change. It's a continuation. It's the next step after that. And that's, that's what we've been cued into. OK. So the Ibn Ezra says, how does this flow? How does this move from a step of being lost from the land to a step of, and put these words upon your souls, and, uh, upon your hearts and souls, tie them to your hands, and between your eyes, which is obviously tefillin. 
So the Ibn Ezra says, you will be exiled. It will be that you're lost because of the famine after the land has been so good to you. And that contrast, why, why is Hashem saying you'll be lost from a land that's good? You're being lost from a land that's barren. That's why you're leaving. He says, no, no, you're going to see that this was such a good land and all of the sudden it has dried up and it will not produce anymore. And when you see that contrast, you realize the problem here is not the land. The problem here is me. That's why Hashem is emphasizing it's a good land you're going to leave. There's nothing wrong with the land. You have to realize, you will realize that you have to take these words close to heart. That you have neglected that and now you take this close to heart. The Or HaChaim says, even if you, uh, the, uh, Shem says the land will be, uh, the, the heavens will be closed up so that the la- and the land will not give its produce. And we mentioned this last time. Even if you work the land carefully and you create new irrigation channels and you dig new wells so that you're, not re- you're trying not to rely on the rain, right? Drip irrigation in the Negev, you're going to make it bloom. You won't be able to get anything out of it if Hashem has closed the heavens. If it's ve'altzaris hashamayim, then ha'aretz lo nesivula, regardless of trying to circumvent the situation of the matar. Okay, so let's consider then the contrast, or, or the comparison at least. Again, not to delve too closely into the relationship of humans and land, but if we look in Bereshis, there was a sin. The land did not put out its produce until man was created to daven for it. And then there was a sin, and the produce gets held back. And it sounds like this. And to mankind, Hashem said, and to the man, Hashem said, you listened to your wife, you ate from the tree which I told you not to eat from. Arura ha'adama, the land is cursed ba'avurecha on your behalf. And with frustration and toil, you will eat from it all the days of your life. And thorns and brambles will sprout for you. So you'll be forced to eat the grass of the fields. By the sweat of your brow will you eat bread. Until you return to the land. Now, from, from which you were taken. Do you hear when it's put next to what we just read in Shema that there's a sort of a double meaning happening there? We always understand about Adam that this is talking about till he's buried, I guess, right? That's the return to the land. But now we have to question, maybe that's not the only thing that's being said over here. Because the next thing that will happen is he'll be sent out of this piece of land that he's in. 
right? And we know that Achras Hayamim is a return to a state of Gan Eden and to a land of Gan. So there is something more going on here, and you can hear that there is a parallel to what is being told to us in Shema. Okay. And furthermore, and I'm trying to remember if we brought it up in this class. <laughs> it's possible not. Uh, it's possible that it actually that we did a little bit in Parshas Bracious. Arura ha'adama, the land is cursed ba'avurecha. Ba'avurecha does not mean because it's your fault. Ba'avurecha means on your behalf. The land is cursed on your behalf. And we we definitely said when we were talking about Eliezer in the Shabbashir, right, what does Arura mean? And we looked at, were you here for when we did Eliezer? You'd remember. <laughs> You'd remember. It was just a few weeks ago, and it was an unusual class. So Rav Hirsch said about Arura, what is Arur? It means barren. It's really oh, yeah, a barrenness yeah. and a dead end. Yeah. It's the opposite of bracha. It doesn't mean curse in the sense that we think of the word curse in English. Well, there's more than one meaning of curse in English as well, other than obviously, you know, sort of disgusting ways of speaking. But curse as in wishing bad upon someone, that's not what arur means. It doesn't mean I wish bad upon someone. It means we will turn off the flow of blessing and the person will be able to achieve less and less with their effort. As opposed to bracha, which is an opening of the flow of blessing into this world, of receiving more here in order to dedicate it to Hashem. When that which is received is not rededicated back to Hashem, it creates a negative feedback loop, and that's arur. The positive feedback loop is bracha. So from the pasuk in Bereshis, the land is arur, is in a negative feedback state. The more that is, the less that is sent, then the less that is that is dedicated back, and therefore less is sent, and therefore less is dedicated back. This is a pattern that we recognize was just being spoken about here in Shema, in Parshas Ekev. And furthermore, it's ba'avurecha, on your behalf, for your sake, that this happens. It's not in order to hurt you, which would be, <laughs> the only reason we ever would have thought that was true is because in English, cursing someone is hoping something bad will happen to them, which is never for their sake. It's always, right? If somebody would curse someone, I don't know, in some sort of story book uh, in English, then if they curse them to uh, prick their have it, fall prick their finger and fall asleep, and it <laughs> led to the fact that they now marry the handsome prince, then the person who made the curse would be disappointed because they didn't want it to come out in the long run to be better for that person. I was thinking more of an example like have a sinkhole open up in their driveway and their car falls into it, but then they find you know billions of dollars of treasure in there. Right? So the person who made the curse would not feel reassured by the fact that their words came true because their intention was for the negative. Whereas aruraha dama ba'avurecha is clearly for the positive. The word arura doesn't sound so great, but ba'avurecha is clearly for the sake of mankind. Okay. And what is the outcome? Okay, so Hashem says the land will be cursed on your behalf. What, it, what happens that will be on your behalf? The outcome that will be on your behalf is that you will now have to toil much harder. You'll have to do more hishtadlus. Instead of 
stepping outside your tent and bringing in the mun, instead of putting your hand out and pulling fruit off of any of the trees and having everything you need, now you're going to have to put in toil. You're going to have to put in the sweat of your brow. You're going to put in the sweat of your brow, and you're still going to end up with all kinds of thorns. Let's put this into something we can relate to. You're still going to have an infestation of bugs in the food that you're going to have to pull out, right? So now it's going to take you 20 hours to clean what you need for a meal. Yeah? Just okay. taking a little license there with the pasuk. <laughs> And what does that lead to? The fact that we've gone into a negative feedback loop, which demands that we put more and more effort in for less and less result, teaches us to realize that it is not the effort which brings the result. Or rather, it is not the physical effort of toiling and plowing and hoeing and planting and weeding and harvesting and threshing and grinding and sifting the bugs out that is what gives us the plenty. It's Hashem who is giving us the plenty. Because when he pulls back and it's Arura, we have to work harder, not less hard. And so that becomes clearer to us. We realize that it is not that all along the fact that I had plenty was not because of my might and because of my power and my, my brilliant mind and my PhD. That's not why I was successful. It was there's nobody to rely upon except for our Father in Heaven. And this is the pattern. This is the pattern to the ultimate return to the land from which we came. However you wish to apply that in any of the many and really what my colleague would call coextensive translations because they really all mean the same thing. Okay. That was... For the sake of continuing integrity, that was my addition onto the Orheim. All right. You will be lost quickly from the good land which Hashem has given you. And now I want to share with you a piece from Rav Moshe Eisman's book called A Listening People. He has written, I don't know, I think maybe 16 or more. Very small, very... <laughs> They're small in the way diamonds are small. They're little treasures, little books. One treasure, they're not little, <laughs> they're just not many pages. <laughs> incredible, incredible books, and I'm going to give you a sample of poetry from the introduction to one of them, if I can find it quickly. Yeah. It's an introduction. Just as an introduction, it was worth reading a few times. Passion. Isn't that a beautiful word? In a world in which cool is king, it is not a very popular commodity. Let us learn to care. Let us learn to live. Let us learn to fly. Let us learn to love God's Torah, to love it passionately. Let us make its pursuit the content of our day, the goal of our life, the crown of our accomplishments. Come, let us ask good questions and stalk good answers. Let us learn. We have far to go. As an introduction to studying the parish of the Ramban, there's an attitude to jumping into learning something. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah, you could see. Just I had to share that. Just 
absolutely not necessarily the introduction to what I'm about to say, but an introduction to his writings altogether. That, that's how we could approach his writings. He takes you with him on an exciting journey of learning and discovery. That's what his books do, each of them. All right, so he has a book called A Listening People, which is just about Kriyashma, uh, pretty much just about Kriyashma. There's a few other little ad added bits about Shmon Esri and so on, but essentially it's about Shema. Shema Yisrael, translated as A Listening People. Yeah. Okay. In the previous essay, we promised to examine the exact nature of Kabbalah's ol mitzvos, meaning willing and joyful acceptance of the yoke of mitzvos, which is what the paragraph of the Hayaim Shemoa as a whole is about, expressed in the second parsha of Kriya Shema. It is a long story, but we must tell it if we are to achieve an understanding of the enormity of the undertaking. And what is this topic? This topic is life in Eretz Yisrael. Okay. Now I'm going to interject here with Rashi, with the words of Rashi, or something. <laughs> You'll see why I say or something. All right. The cure for being sent out of the land, and I think we can say further, the purpose for which we were sent out of the land is put these words on your heart and on your soul. You should do it in Eretz Yisrael. But what if you didn't? Then you're going to have to do it now. We've got to get you back into that and tie them onto your arms and your head. So Rashi says, Even after you are exiled, again, he seeks to explain how do you flow from the first Pasuk to the next Pasuk. Even after you are exiled, you should be, this is very difficult to translate. There are many commentaries on this Rashi. Okay, mitsuyan means outstanding. It means outstanding. It's used colloquially, like on a test, you get mitsuyan on a test, it means you did a great job but it more literally is outstanding. The question is, what does outstanding mean? Yeah, B'mitzvos, with mitzvos, or in mitzvos. Okay, so why do I say outstanding instead of, let's say, excellent or amazing? Because litzayin means to point something out. A tziyun is a grave marker because it, it, def it tells you, it's like in the sense of a map, not in the sense of anything cemetery-ish per se. It's a tziyun because it shows you where something is. It's a marker. Litzayin right. is to mark. So outstanding is something which stands out. Yeah. So the question is, does that mean you should stand out because you do mitzvos? You will be outstanding in that you do mitzvos. Or does it mean, which is I think the, the most easy explanation of the Rashi, you should set markers for yourself with mitzvos. Mitzuyanim ba mitzvos, you should, you should mark your trail with mitzvos. Yeah, I think it's probably the simple understanding of the Rashi. But it's beautiful. But it's beautiful. As, as simple as it is. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's unexpected for us because of the way we know the word mitzuyan. Yeah. 
It's like one of those, you know, Rabbi Tatz always gives these examples of how people use words in Hebrew, in modern Hebrew, yeah, yeah. and then they cannot relate to them correctly. And it's the same word as, as Tzion. It's, yeah, Tzion. Yeah, beautiful. I didn't see anybody mention it, but that, that would seem to be, yeah, that would make the word Mitsuyan mean repatriated to Tzion. Mitsuyan would be to be Zionized. Um, not, not as in Zionist, no, but... Zionized. No, <laughs> yeah. You kind of... Yeah, okay. A, new pro- a process of coming to Zion. That's beautiful. I'm sure that it must mean that. That's awesome. Okay. Heyu mitsuyonim ba mitzvos. Okay. This... <laughs> could have saved myself a lot of Agmas Nefesh if I'd been using that Chomish originally. Let me find. Now this is gonna. Don't get too upset, because you may as well learn from my mistakes. Well, it's not really my mistake, but you don't have to go where I've already been. How should you be mitzuyanim ba mitzvos? Hanichu tefillin, asu mezuzos. Place to fill in, make mezuzos. Now, that, okay, makes sense because it's about to say put on to fill in the Pasuk. And then shortly, in another Pasuk after that, it will say write mezuzos. Okay. Kedei shelo yihiyu lachem chadashim keshetichazru. Ta'or tachzeru. Now, if you've ever heard this before, I heard this in high school, and I haven't gotten over it. And the Ramban does go in this direction of what appears to be the Rashi. Put on tefillin and make mezuzos in order that these mitzvos will not be new to you when you get back. As the Pasuk says in Yirmiya, Hatsivi l'chatsiyunim, make markers for yourself. So the Jewish people are exiled in the dark forest by the wicked stepmother and they will drop little stones along the way so they can find their way home, right? You're kicked out of Eretz Yisrael and you wanna find your way back, then you better mark the road as you go. How do you do that when it comes to Eretz Yisrael, when it comes to Jewish people? You do that with mitzvos. So you keep doing these mitzvos so they won't be new when you get back, you'll be used to them. How about you? This is deeply disturbing. Right. The whole time you're doing it, that's right. It's all rehearsal. (laughs) (laughs) It's very, very, very disturbing. Okay. Yeah. Now, I can tell you, it says this basically in every Chomish. I imagine teachers either don't care or go through it really, really fast. Like mine did. A little bit of both. It's very whenever, depressing. Whenever it takes away a sense of is. yeah. It takes away a sense of purpose from your mitzvahs. Yeah. So, so what's with the sefer achinuch? <laughs> right. I don't notice that the sefer achinuch says mitzvah after mitzvah. Certainly, you know, we did read the sefer achinuch on tefillin and mezuzah back in the first paragraph of Shema. Right. We spent quite a lot of sessions on it, mm-hmm. and I don't remember that anywhere he said keep in the habit. That, you know, what is the purpose of the mitzvah? Mishor Sheha mitzvah. In order that when Mashiach comes and we all go back to Eretz Yisrael, we'll know how to live as Jews. Now, I don't know, you're, um, 
you're out there. <laughs> keep in practice. Keep your hand in. It seems through the course of history that it's already happened that many of the Muranos and, and other families that were totally lost to Judaism found their way back through the mezuzah that their grandmother had on the door or the hidden mezuzah that was behind the cross on the door or I mean this that's is a good that's a nice point that would you think do you think back. you could go so far as to say many I mean in the scope of the of the population that was lost I, I also don't know and in fact I mean on the one hand <laughs> the people who were then making those markers were the ones who who sent themselves into an exile of mitzvahs, right? Very, very difficult to grapple, even if we can understand intellectually, you know, not to get political, but if, I don't know, the next president were to come along in the United States and pass horrible laws, and such things have been known to happen in living history, right? Then it would be very hard for people, especially living in a lovely gullus like Los Angeles, right, to say, we're getting out of here, you can't live like that. Right? People would say, look, he's here for four years. Surely APAC will change his mind in the next few months. Just because he signed this presidential order, you know, it can't possibly last. So you know, to give everything up, because in a couple months it's going to turn around, obviously we're not going to really believe in Christianity, but you know, I don't, I'm not sure we have to be like, throw our lives away or leave completely. I mean, this is, how did there get to be Muranos? It was families that converted officially. It's, never mind. There are, but there were people who left. And those families are still existing. The Murano families then, you know, you see like it is a hopeful sign. You do hear just on this constant trickle, mostly coming out of South America, this constant trickle of people who have what are clearly Jewish tziunim, as you say, in the family, and who are somehow returning their families back to Judaism. Mm -hmm. and, and so this one little, you know, she'eris hapleta of these families is able to bring a full circle. There is a feeling that somehow they're bringing something full circle, that, that there was a positive mesiras nefesh that happened in there, and uh, they certainly, certainly paid a, a much higher price than anybody could have ever imagined at the time. They did not end up having it easier than the ones who went into voluntary exile. But I, yeah, okay, that's an interesting way to think about it. But it's a, di it's nonetheless a very difficult route. Yeah, I mean, if you look at you know, the, the mitzvah of the woman to mechanech her children. Mm-hmm. And if you look at that, at that mitzvah through the lens of what it's saying, we as women will be the agent of redemption in a way because we were the one to sin first. And so we're going to, through Chinuch, carrying the mitzvah, put that about to go back to the land and I, know what to do when we will be there. And so It does open up a question, meaning when a child, when you are mechanech a child to mitzvahs, so one thing you're doing is you were doing them a huge favor because imagine if, you know, when you turn 12 or 13, all of a sudden you've got to keep the mitzvahs. And yes, you've been watching other people, but until then, you know, you haven't had to, then, then that would be very difficult. So there are certain things where we say, like, you don't put the extra siagim. 
So halacha lemaisa, like if a child wants to eat uh, before Kiddush and Havdalah. The reason we don't eat before Kiddush, the reason we don't eat before Havdalah is because we have another chiyuv. Meaning once the chiyuv of Kiddush or Havdalah kicks in, we don't eat in order that we won't get distracted and miss the mitzvah. So that kind of extra barrier to make sure you don't miss a mitzvah, we don't, we don't say is, is um, necessary at all for a child under bar or bas mitzvah. Even a child who's next week, there'll be a bar mitzvah. This Shabbos, if they want to eat something before the meal, it's not a problem. Because they don't have the chiyuv of the kiddush. So you don't add on top of the chiyuv of the kiddush also that you're going to hold back from eating. You know, but they, they'll know there is such a thing. And fine. But basically speaking, you know, they, they're going to, you don't plunge into something all at once. However, do we say then that the mitzvah that the child did is only a rehearsal? I'm not sure. I'm not sure that we do. I would, I would be surprised if it were so. Because even though you would think that if a child does do a mitzvah, then to the degree that they are choosing to do the mitzvah, that it should still be a mitzvah. It's just an eno mitzvah. I would think, but I don't know the halacha. It's an interesting question. It would be difficult to convince our children to do mitzvahs if we truly believed that in their doing it there was not a value other than the value it would have later, right? There are things for which I, I have a friend in Israel who lost a child, and um, at some stage she was advised halachically not to, uh, let's say, insist. The child was quite young. She was five, maybe. Uh, that she wear tights or socks, right? Because it, be it was, it doesn't mean they're giving up completely, but medically speaking, it was not likely this child was going to live to an age where she would actually have a chiyuv in sneas. In which case, you don't have to be mechanecher to it. And she was more comfortable without it. That was very tragic. I mean, you know, you could imagine the mother having to grapple with the fact that that's the reality was not a simple thing. But that would be an example in a very sad way of the, where does the value of a chinuch, is it only in the end result? It could be. The idea of chinuch is establishing something for where it will end up. And yet, chinuch is also a process. It's lechanech is the beginning of it, but there's all the stuff in the middle, and I don't know the answer. I don't know. Um, okay, now the Ramban, the Ramban does, does bring up the question. He says, you know, these mitzvahs, tefillin and mezuzahs, are not mitzvahs that depend upon the land. They're not, you know, if you told me, uh, if you told me, well, now that the Beis HaMikdash is destroyed and you don't live in the land, it's, oh, I'll give you an example of one that does exist. Lulav. It is a mitzvah to take a lulav and esrog del raisa on the first day of Sukkot. The same way we have a seder. We have a seder on Pesach, the first night of Pesach. We do not make a seder for seven nights of Pesach, which would be interesting. Right? <laughs> okay. It's a mitzvah to take a lulav and esrog the first night. Now, it happens to be in the Beis HaMikdash, the mitzvah del raisa is to take the, the lulav and esrog every day of Sukkot, but not anywhere else. Not anywhere else. Anywhere else is just the first day. 
when the Beis HaMikdash was destroyed, the Chachamim said, really everywhere, let's take up, let's pick up the Lulav and Ezra, which is a mitzvah the rice of the first day, and we will pick it up every, all the other six days of Sukkot as well as at Zion to come back. Meaning that we shouldn't, we shouldn't forget this, but, but there was still a mitzvah the first day. Okay, but the other days we're doing it, it is a mitzvah the Rabbanon, meaning it has a vow. You don't have to know that it's to, that it's to remember the Beis HaMikdash. It is a mitzvah, and it is a mitzvah of remembering the Beis HaMikdash. Okay, but tefillin and a mezuzah? Okay, so the, the Lula Vanesrug, so also people who lived in, I don't know, you know, Beersheva didn't pick up a Lula Vanesrug the other six days. So it's a mitzvah hatzaluya, not ba'aretz, but, but even just, you know, on harabayas. But this you're talking about, by the way, it's not dependent on the base of mikdash, it's harabayas. So I know that Revo Yashiv always liked to be brought, and many other gedolim in Eretz Yisrael would always try and get to the kosel. Daven or to somewhere because it could be that when you're in sight of Harabayas, that mitzvah is del Raisa. And there it adds a value to the mitzvah that you're doing if you can do it as a del Raisa, even That's above. Right. Sorry? It's, it, it's packed. They go early. <laughs> it's not so packed in the Nate's zone. <laughs> yeah, no, you can't. Somebody's 100 years old, you know. You, you know blast through the crowds. Although they do have they do have ways of getting through the crowd for somebody at a certain point. Yeah, but you know, they could bring a car in. <laughs> you get like a phalanx of, you know, men in black hats kind of clearing the way through. There's always something you could learn from a Roman. So, if nothing else, you can get through a crowd. Okay. But the Ramban does go in this direction of what it appears that Rashi is saying. And and it truly is a, a disturbing thing, and I look forward to getting some kind of handle on, on that Ramban someday. But in the meantime, okay, so this is, this is our background, and I'm going to come back to Rav Moshe Heisman. The time has come for us who are Golos Yidin, living in English-speaking countries, to come to grips with what we are missing. We need to think about Eretz Yisrael. So this is why I wanted to introduce the idea of that Rashi first, so we understand like this dis how disturbed we are at the idea that you're saying that there would be less value to our mitzvos here. And, and uh, like I said, don't let yourself get too upset about it. Just enough to have a greater appreciation for the question. I'll try and I'll try and set your mind at rest before we leave. Okay. Then he quotes the Ramban talking about the fact that we need to not emulate the Averos of the Canaanim. We are going to come into the land of Canaan. We should not adopt their practices. Do not defile yourself with any of these practices because it was by these practices that the nations whom I am driving out before you defiled themselves. And it's not just that you deserve Eretz Yisrael and so you're coming in. There's somebody else who left. They didn't leave because you were coming in. This is kind of an important point. The Canaanim and the other nations that lived in Eretz Yisrael did not leave because we were coming in. They left because they deserved to be kicked out or wiped out, like the people of Sodom. Sodom didn't need to have anybody else moving in to be wiped out. Everyone is judged according to their own exact situation. Hashem judges everyone 
Nobody is judged at the expense of somebody else. And so the land became defiled. And when I directed my providence at the sin committed there, the land vomited out its inhabitants. That's his paraphrase of the Ramban. What is happening here? Excuse the expression. Paris does not vomit out its sinners, as far as we can tell. Doesn't seem to have happened yet. <laughs> Possibly the in Jews process, will leave. The Jews are leaving. <laughs> but the sinners, I don't know. I guess they can stay in Paris. Nor does Peru or any other place. What is special about Eretz Yisrael? What about this vomiting? It seems a little too graphic for our tastes, which we had a similar reaction to that other Rashi. right? What is being said? It is indeed a strong metaphor. God created the human body in a manner that if something is ingested that is dangerous to its well-being, a process is set in motion whereby the offending matter is disgorged. The body's instinctive self-preservation will not allow the irritant to remain. Eretz Yisrael is precisely the same. It will not tolerate defilement. It will recognize and eject the people who generate the evil that gnaws away at its spiritual health. And this is vavadatem mehera, like vomiting. It's quick and it's immediate. There isn't time to let the poison set in and do greater damage. The land becoming tame can be paraphrased as, and the land became sick. Tuma of the land is equivalent to a sickness in the body. Again, this really brings back what Rav Schwab was telling us, and Orheim also says something like this, about that ve'ochalta v'savata that started the process. The process of too much food and the damage it does the body, and it has its perfect correlate in what happens to us spiritually, then we cut, we believe that the source is the physical and that poisons us spiritually from Hashem. In science class, we learn to view the rallying of the body's defenses against infection as a fight to the death between the life force which animates the body and the invaders who threaten it. If the defiled land is to be compared to a sick body, we need to understand the metaphor. What's the life force that animates Eretz Yisrael in contrast to Paris or Peru? In defense of what is the battle engaged and who are the intruders? A Pasuk in Bamidbar can help us understand. There we are urged to take appropriate action against a murderer in order that, that you will not defile the land within which you live, in which I also dwell. For I am Hashem who dwells within the children of Israel. In this passage, the vulnerability to violation, which is the weakness but also the glory of the land, is linked directly to the Shekhinah, which finds its home there. So what is at risk by the poison of the Toma in Eretz Yisrael? It's the Shekhinah, God's presence dwelling there. It is the Ribbono Shalom himself who is the life force in defense of the land. Eretz Yisrael vomits forth the intruders who cannot rise to the demands for sanctity which inhere in the presence of God. Eretz Yisrael is something very special. Just to circle around to what we said about Arura Ha'adama Ba'avurecha, Hashem's Kedusha also animates us. The land ejecting us defends Hashem's presence in Eretz Yisrael. And at the same, the same process defends Hashem's presence within ourselves. It's the 
it's the two angles of the asoli mikdash veshochanti besocham, where besocham is the besam mikdash in our midst, and besocham is Hashem's holiness within us. It's the same process is the, the arura ha'adama ba'avurecha, it's one and the same. It defends the Kedusha of the land and it defends the Kedusha within us in order that we will return to the land and return to the holiness within us and not be defiled. I just want to point out, this is the same process. We have a picture of the ideal Jewish life as the Torah pictures it. It is to be lived in Eretz Yisrael in the palace of the king. Its forms must be those appropriate to the servants of the king who are sufficiently favored to move in close proximity to him. He's, he's comparing when a, I don't know, let's say a footman in the palace. Or you go to now to Buckingham Palace. There's a very, very specific uniform that's worn by a guard at Buckingham Palace, right? You get the big furry hat and the red jacket and the white, whatever you call them, over the strap, you know, and the, this is what they wear. And that's, that's a glory to the guard in the fact that it reflects where he works. It's a much nicer outfit than you wear in the armed forces of England if you're in some other job outside. The closer you are, right? So what happens if you have to send one of those beef eaters on a job? So he could theoretically not wear the outfit outside because it's a function of the proximity to the royal house that is what causes him to wear the outfit. On the other hand, wearing it outside, while it, does, it represents the fact that he is going back. So if you would see, uh, oh, let's say at the changing of the guard, right? That instead of taking <laughs> off the beaver hats and just, I don't know, put, stacking them neatly near the gate, right? They're still wearing the outfit, the uniform on the way out, on the way in. The fact that you're wearing it outside the grounds of where it has its purpose mm -hmm. creates a purpose of heading into the purpose, so to speak. Meaning when you're not fulfilling the purpose, you imbue that with purpose because it's part of a process of getting there. You can hear how what he's doing, this is the approach of the Ramban, according to what appears to be the Rashi, yeah, that the way that we live through Torah and mitzvot, the appearance of that life is a life of those who have the merit of living in the palace of the king. It is a different uniform, not just of clothes. It's an entirely different behavior, a different set of expectations. Obviously, it's a privilege. This is much better than being out in, you know, I don't know, the outer Hebrew, the outer, what do they call them? Those islands? Okay. Out past Hebrides. Scotland, Hebrides, right? That would, you'd much rather be posted at Buckingham Palace. Okay. This requirement is absolute. It brooks no compromise. We will either shoulder our responsibilities or not. We will either exist Jewishly <coughs> or not. If we shrug off the yoke of our privilege, we will be driven out of our natural home and condemned to a Jewishly aberrant life in the wastelands. That is Kabbalah's old mitzvot on a heroic scale. With apologies to Shakespeare, to be or not to be, that is the question. Are you going to be serving Hashem in the land or 
not? That's the question of a Hayayim Shamoa. So before we end today, I just don't want to, it's not really fair because I'm using a bias, which is the difficulty I have, even though Rabbi Eisman has made it much more manageable. Nonetheless, I sort of kind of don't want to abandon you there with it. <laughs> um, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read you something that really, I, I, I have to tell you, I considered not reading the Rashi. I don't always read every Rashi when we're doing Shema, and um, I could have skipped that one because I have such a, I have such a difficult time grappling with it because of that sense of, of lack of purpose, even though now I think we have a little more sense of purpose to it. And I considered it, and then it felt like, well, that would not be, it wouldn't be intellectually honest. It's one thing if we're not reading a Rashi because what it brings answers an issue with the Pasuk, but it's, it's not what we need for our tefillah, and, or like as if I know what we need for our tefillah. But it seems you know, to follow. We can't say everything, and so we pick something that helps us move along in a certain train of thought and building one idea upon another. But to skip it just because I don't feel comfortable with it, so at least I have to tell you that I would do that. Not right. But I thought about it, and I didn't feel good about that, and I wasn't quite sure what I was going to do. This goes back a few weeks. And I was just mentioning this problem. And then I sat down and I opened a Panini Mishulchan Hagra. And the first thing it popped open to was uh, a very interesting explanation of the Vilna Gaon. So this is said in the name of the Vilna Gaon. Rashi explains, even after you are exiled, you should be mitsuyanim ba mitzvos whatever that means, uh, outstanding, standing out with mitzvos. Hanichu tefillin, put on tefillin, asu mezuzos, make mezuzos, in order that they will not be new to you when you come back. As it says, establish for yourself way markers. And this is from the Sifri. And this is very difficult. Because the Gemara in Kiddushin, Lamed Vav, Amud Beis, says, any mitzvah that depends upon Eretz Yisrael is only done in Eretz Yisrael. <laughs> and any mitzvah that does not depend on the land to do it, then it is obligatory whether you're in Eretz Yisrael or outside Eretz Yisrael. And over here, Rashi seems to be saying, I mean, if you, if you read the Rashi carefully, he seems to be suggesting that the mitzvahs of tefillin and mezuzah are not obligatory outside the land of Eretz Yisrael. And we're only doing them to keep ourselves accustomed to them. And if not for that, we would be potter. Now, this is something that is typical of the Vilna Gaon, but not too many other people can pull it off. Very few. And the Gras says, it seems that it's an error in the copy transcribing of the Rashi. I can't even tell you, when I opened this up, and this is what was on my mind, and I was worrying about this, and I opened up to see what's going to be over here, not with that problem. That problem was on my mind, but that wasn't the reason I was opening the Sefer. I was just sort of like, <sighs> you know? <laughs> Oh, okay, so if the, if the Grah has an issue, then I don't have to feel like it's that I have a problem of intellectual honesty that I'm picking and choosing, right? Because that's a big problem. I'm going to start picking and choosing which parts of Rashi and which parts of Torah mm -hmm. I think are meaningful to me, and those are the parts I'm going to relate to, and the other part, you know, so then there's, this is not the correct path. 
And it's certainly not the same thing as what we've been talking about all these months of Kabbalah's Omalchus Shemaim and Kabbalah's Malchus Shemaim and Kabbalah's Mitzvos, which is, are you Mechabel or are you not? That's Nasev and Ishma, right? We, it's, of course, different people, different personalities, different things speak to us. But that's a very long way from rejecting that which does not speak to us. Okay. But the Velma also didn't feel absolutely comfortable with it. Um, although, as I said, the Ramban does take this approach, and he gives, in several places, he explains on this approach, and I hope to someday understand it better, even better. He says, it seems to be a mistake in copying over the Rashi, and this is not unusual, because Rashi predates the invention of the printing press by hundreds of years. And even after the printing press came about, there was quite a bit of time before everything was printed and people could afford it. So for hundreds of years, the way that you got a parish of Rashi on the Torah was by hand copying it out from a previous one. And one of the things that happened, there are mistakes, mostly it's not so much major mis well, there can be major mistakes, but sometimes it'll be a missing word or there'll be, um, you'll come across a Rashi where it'll say a word and then it'll say in other versions, and it'll be like a very, very similar word, maybe one letter different. And they'll put that in because there's two different girsos. There are two different versions of the Rashi floating around because somewhere along the way, it's clear, somewhere along the way, somebody copied a word wrong. And we know how easy that is to happen. So, and it's not a safer Torah. You don't have to check it three times. You don't have to, you know, and it can happen. All right. But what happens even more commonly in a Rashi is Roshi Tevos, acronyms. This is not something that exists with a Chumash. Okay? So you have something like Aleph, uh, Aleph and two lines and Yud. That means Eretz Yisrael. Okay, that's a really, really, really common acronym. And you're not likely to mess that one up, except by just a simple mess up of the hand writing. But there are other places where either Rashi used an acronym and somebody interpreted it wrong, and instead of copying the Rashi as it was written, expanded it back out into the full words, but, but made a mistake. Or the other way around, meaning Rashi may have written it out, and somebody along the way, just to shorthand it, put it into an acronym. It may not be Rashi who made it as an acronym. In fact, in this case, it's, it's likely that it, it wasn't Rashi's acronym. Some copyist along the way made it, abbreviated it, and another copyist along the way expanded it back out, but didn't come up with the same result. So here's what he says. It seems that in the older, if you go back to the older versions of Rashi, if you go back far enough, what you find is that it's Rashi Tevos, it's abbreviated. So that's why you can say there's an error in the explanation, I meaning it's not you look at older ones, you see that it's been abbreviated. Now, whether it was abbreviated by Rashi or a copyist, does, it almost doesn't matter, right? The point is, if in the old versions it was an abbreviation, and now it's being written out longhand, uh, then it is entirely possible that there was an error in the interpretation of the abbreviation. And, what it's, and again, this is really only the Vilna Gaon who gets away with this. There are other people who find Tikkune HaMikra, um, not, not Hamikra, sorry, Tikkune, let's say, uh, the text in a Gemara. There are places where people will question, but, but almost, are, I mean, it's the Gra who can really pull that off and be convincing and trusted on it. We don't, we're not too quick to change the text of something. The Rashi Tevos, the acronym, the abbreviation was 
Hey, Suf, Ayin Mem. And somebody along the way thought that that meant Hanichu Tefillin Asu Mezuzos. Put on Tefillin, make Mezuzos. And it kind of makes sense because those are the mitzvos that are mentioned within this block of three or four psukim. However, that wasn't really what Rashi put. The intention of that acronym was Hafrishu Trumos Isru Maisros. Separate Trumos and take Maiser, which are mitzvos that are only applicable in the land. Okay, but now we still have a question. In what way do we take Miser and Truma then being, a, well, yes, how does it relate to the land? That I think we could explain. Because then you, then you have a different question, which is why did Rashi bring those examples? Which you can do. The Gorari will go on there for sure. He'll say, why does Rashi bring this example of a mitzvah, not that one? Okay, so we wouldn't have thought to ask it. Kolzman, that we thought that it was talking about Tefillin and Mezuzah, doesn't occur to us to ask the question, why did he choose that? Because it's what's in front of us. Seems obvious. Now we have a question. But before we get to the question, let's first work out the implications of the idea that what Rashi actually said was, the whole time you're in Gullus, take, take Trumas and Maestris in order that they won't be new to you when you go back to the land. First of all, that completely changed. There is no more suggestion that the other mitzvahs that we're doing don't have any, the same value wherever you are. They do. Okay. But we still have the question, but... But then mitzvahs that are only Nohig and Eretz Yisrael, why would we be doing them outside of Eretz Yisrael? So Rashi says, in order that you'll remember them. So now we have to think, well, but, but like when you're in Eretz Yisrael, it's really an issue. Like you can't eat the fruit until you meister it. How does that come up now? We, we don't do that. I mean, it really is new for us when we go back. We're not accustomed to it. Okay. So the truth is, we do do it. How do we do it? We take truma when we take off challah. That's truma. That's for the coin. And we don't eat it. We don't eat the bread without taking off a piece. So even though we don't do it on every single produce of the land, when we're outside of the land of Israel, we do take off from our bread the truma. So it is actually inculcated into us when we go back to Eretz Yisrael, what we say is, oh, it's not that the whole idea of, of dedicating my food to Hashem and the work of my hands in making the bread, the zeas, it's not foreign to me that I always take off some of it and say this is holy. And in doing so, I bring Kedusha to all of it. This is the, the reason it's necessary, right? That's, I mean, we know this is all we've talked about today is that process, really. This is a physical embodiment, this is a mitzvah which brings that about, exactly the resolution of the problem we're talking about, it won't be novel to us. And how do we miser? We miser our money. We miser our income. We don't stand there if we have a flock of sheep, and you live in, say, Los Angeles, but it's not a very good example. Wherever it is we live, we don't stand and put them through one by one and say one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, miser. We don't do that now but we do take a tenth off of all of the money that we earn and say, this is Meiser, this is going to, right? It's not the mitzvah of Meiser, the mitzvah of Meiser is not Meiser of money. The mitzvah of Meiser is in order that when we come back to a, it's not just when we come back to the relationship, it's the return itself. 
the returning to the land. This is the Rashi is maybe really trying to tell us. It won't be new when you are on the return. It's not just he doesn't say when you get back. It's when you he doesn't say when you're in the land again. He says when you return. The process of returning itself, that's why it's way markers. They are the signposts that show us the way back. It is the reversal of the process that sent us out, which was having plenty, eating more than we required, right? taking a bigger share and losing sight of where it came from that flipped us out from Baruch into Arur. But this, the Trumas and the Maestros, this is the way back. And therefore, the Torah doesn't say you have to do them in Chutz Laaretz. It's true. But my goodness, we can't possibly be willing to stop. This is our only way of leaving a trail of crumbs to get back again. It's an interesting image. The trail of crumbs, and each one is, you know, taken off your challah, right? I mean, this is we, we ourselves are going to hang on to that desperately. That's what Torah is telling you. This is good advice. Do this if you ever want to come back, and this is our road to return. So we'll continue with next time. But I hope that at the very least we could leave you with a, a slightly less feeling of pressure from that Rashi. <laughs>